0: I just want to welcome everybody. Welcome from Apricot Consulting. I'm Lana Johnson. I'm the Director of Leadership and Change. And we're here today to talk about social procurement. And I'm really, really excited to hear from three very different panellists, bring their unique perspectives and experiences in this area. Um, you'll have a chance to hear about and ask questions on the challenges, approaches and solutions for social procurement And our expert panellists, there are leaders in their field in what they do, and they're going to share with you some really practical steps that businesses can take to enhance their social procurement impact. But also there'll be some tips in here for social enterprises. How do I partner with business so that we can collectively have a positive uh, social impact and benefit as well? Um, So um, Apricot Consulting, for those of you who know us, some of you may know us for the work that we do uh, on leadership and change, Um, but others are here because you know us from our social procurement uh, work that we do. And uh, it's one of um, uh, our key growth areas. We're seeing a huge amount of amount and opportunity for businesses and social enterprises, which is really, really exciting. So great to be able to bring you this topic today. Our, our main focus really sits in helping businesses understand their own unique business case for social procurement and what steps they can take in their journey, whether they're at the starting gates or they've been doing it for some time. Um, we help them to um, find the right partner. So one of the things we've learned along the way is understanding who the right partner is, finding the right partner and setting up a relationship that has mutual value is a really important and not always as straightforward as you think it might be. So we absolutely help in that space. And then, of course, in the implementation of that partnership and then towards um, once the partnership is underway, how do we actually measure and track the value that it's creating but also help you tell that story because it's a really important story to share, uh, not only for the communities and the people you serve, the consumers you serve, but also for your people and for the brand, but also the investors that um, have an interest in your business as well. So that's that's what we do at Apricot Consulting. Really pleased to have James McHugh here um, who uh, no doubt will be watching those questions closely uh, and helping us answer some of those Um, uh, James is our Head of Corporate Social Sustainability at Apricot Consulting Uh, and I think probably also got Fiona Lewis on the line as well, which is fantastic, and Deborah Elvin, all part of our ESG team at Apricot Consulting. So today, um, let me just let you know the run of the day. I'm going to start by asking Paul Ashby from Oricon a series of questions. Really looking forward to hear, hearing from Paul for a long-standing relationship, a really rich relationship with Oricon. So thank you, Paul. We'll come to you um, in just a moment. And then looking forward to um, speaking with Janet Cribbs from Tradeswomen Australia again. She's going to provide a lovely unique perspective from a not-for-profit and social enterprise perspective. So for those of you who are a social enterprise. Um, or a social provider, really great to hear from from, um, Janet. And then thirdly, we're expecting Hannah Irwin from University of Melbourne to join us. She's just working through some technical issues and hope she'll be here later on. Uh, But if she doesn't, we have a backup plan. Always have a plan B when you're dealing with technology, especially in the age of COVID. So um, Warren couldn't make it today, so Hannah's kindly stepped in at the very last minute, which is really wonderful. Really pleased to have her joining us a little bit later in the webinar. So I just want to remind uh, anyone who's just joined us, down the bottom of the Zoom panel, we have a Q&A button. If you open that uh, window, we'd love you to pop your questions in as we go throughout the webinar. It's not every day that you have a chance to ask questions to three expert panellists on this topic of social procurement We're open to all questions. We recognise we've probably got a range of people attending today from those who are just learning about social procurement for the first time, and those who have been doing it for some time. So we look forward to your questions. We'll be looking at those um, throughout the webinar, but there's a dedicated section on Q&A at the end, and that's where we'll we'll mostly come to those questions, so that's fantastic. Um, And uh, also just want to let you know that really today, what we're super excited about is that we actually think there's a really, well, there is a significant opportunity for businesses to have a wonderful positive impact to create social value simply through their choices in supply chains and procurement as well. And today we really want to explore that because there's probably opportunities sitting there that you haven't tapped into yet, or that you can make better use of if you're already doing this and want to have it working more effectively for you and creating value both for you um, and the social enterprises you engage with. So, Paul, to you first, thank you so much for being here today. It's absolutely wonderful to have this opportunity to have someone from a business who's been working in this space for some time now. Um, But what's unique about you, Paul, is that you're actually not a procurement person at all. So um, we look forward to hearing a bit about your role and what you do uh, at Oricon New Zealand. And and just to make that point that you aren't a procurement person, but here you are, uh, an expert. In social procurement. Um, your background's actually in telecommunications. So you've been in a number of firms that we might we might might recognise, such as Lucent, Free, UK broadband, Nokia, Optus in senior project management roles. And now um, joined Oricon, um, originally as a Telstra project director and client relationships manager, but now land and water lead for both Victoria and South Australia okay. this is the focus of your role. So to start us off. Uh, Paul, it would be fantastic to hear from you a little bit about Oricon for those that aren't um, as familiar as others might be, and also what your
1: role is. Thanks, Lana. Uh, Just to uh, kick off proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are today, whether we're in Melbourne or outside Melbourne, of course, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Uh, the term that you used, expert, doesn't necessarily sit that comfortably with me, but uh, I will give it a go anyway, Lana. Uh, Oricon, uh, as someone on the call may know and understand, is a uh, is large uh, design, engineering, and advisory company uh, that uh, brings to life and creates a better future for people, the community, and uh, the planet. That certainly is our aspiration, and we work across a range of uh, of markets and international locations. Uh, at our heart, I guess, you know, we want to work alongside our clients to collectively help solve their complex uh, problems and challenges that, that they have. Uh, I'm currently, as as Lana outlined, the uh, uh, the unit group leader for Land and Water across Victoria uh, and SA, uh, and stretching into Tas. Uh, and I'm also on our regional steer code, uh, uh, developing and refining our, our social procurement and our shared value uh, vision and strategy.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Paul. Wonderful to have you here. And, Paul, um, before we really get into our next questions, it would be great to start with a definition of social procurement. So when you're talking to people, how do you define and describe social procurement?
1: So I guess from uh, my perspective, yeah, it. Uh, uh, social procurement really can be defined as to, you know, as to how an organisation's spending can be used to support social problems within the community. Uh, but from my perspective, and I guess Oricom's mm-hmm. viewpoint as well, uh, social procurement is more than simply spending to provide support. It's, it's really about investing and engaging with social enterprises and marginalised groups. Um, it's about promoting a, a more diverse and inclusive workforce. Uh, and ultimately, it's about creating employment opportunities within the, the community. Uh, so, from an Oricon perspective and, and from my perspective, it's it's really about being able to give back to our community.
0: Fantastic. Um, and it sounds to me, as you described that, that, you know, Oricon's got a, a pretty clear and almost mature compared to many organisations' view of social procurement, which is fantastic. Um, And one of the things that I know has been really uh, important to your success at Oricon is that focus on successful partnerships in particular that you've mentioned there. So it would be wonderful to hear from your perspective, Paul, you know, what would a successful partnership look like? And if you've got uh, examples you can share just to bring that to life for people, that would be wonderful.
1: Will do. Uh, Did you want to view the video now or at the conclusion of the
0: yeah yeah we we absolutely can so Ben if you're ready to share the video we're going to show a short video that's actually this is being released for the very first time so we're very lucky to be seeing this it hasn't actually been released by Oricon but it's a great story and a great illustration of the work that Oricon's doing so just give us a thumbs up to make sure that um, we know that you can hear it and you can see it thanks Ben Design is the art of designing around how humans think and behave. At its core, it's about researching the needs of people and understanding what impacts their use of a product or service, system or space. It also gives the designer the privilege to cater to people's needs with empathy and to make the world a better and more inclusive place for everyone. In early 2020, The Victorian Government Department of Transport engaged Oricon to better understand the accessibility needs of people using tram stops around Melbourne. The goal was to create a better experience for travellers with diverse mobility challenges, building on the insights from previously conducted research.
2: Oricon discovered the user experience for our client by collaborating with Social Enterprise Ability Works. This built on partnering with them
1: on our social inclusion procurement strategy. We've now been able to seek their insights into the unique needs and pain points experienced by different users at tram stops, including people with hearing, sight, cognitive or mobility impairment, amongst others.
0: AbilityWorks is a not-for-profit organisation that connects Victorians living with a disability and experiencing disadvantage to education, training and employment opportunities. Today, one in five people in Australia live with a disability, so we were delighted when Oricon approached our employees to provide insights into the Tramp Stop
2: Design Project. I think it was a very nice experience, and I'm very proud to be in part of the project. Bringing in AbilityWorks employees to gain insight into Melbourne's tram stop design proved invaluable to the project. Their unique skill set and fresh perspective gave us clear requirements for accessible transport design that weren't considered before. To help empathise and understand the lives of people living with a disability, we used a digital VR model to create seven different types of tram stops here in Melbourne. The digital twins of the tram stops were created by Oricon's unsigned studio using a tool called Sightlab. This allowed us to rapidly experience different perspectives of what it was like for people to travel as they told us about their stories about navigating tram stops when you have accessibility needs.
1: With trams, I find that quite often in the city, the tram stops aren't accessible to people in wheelchairs. And if you get on at one, you've got to make sure that there's another one to get off at. I would hope that the transport sector would like to use our inclusive design centre more to plan for the future so that people with disabilities have greater access to Uh, everyday life the insights gathered through the project will be used in current and future projects we're thrilled to continue this partnership with AbilityWorks beyond this project it is an incredible privilege to sue our client and all the AbilityWorks team thank you for allowing us to be part of such a special project
0: great thanks for playing that um just to the audience i'd love for paul's benefit what were your reactions as you watched that video if you could pop that into the chat be nice just to see to see that so paul over to you just to talk a little bit more to that and some of the other projects that you've been doing
1: thanks lana uh i guess if i talk from the macro just before i jump down into the micro and our uh, relationship with ability works and spectrum as an example uh from, from my perspective, in, in, in terms of having a successful partnership in this space, there's a few key drivers that I think are, are particularly important. Uh, the first aspect is, is making sure that there is alignment within the partnership about the, uh, in terms of our goals and what we want to achieve and that there is a clear sense of, of purpose. So being able to uh, build a, a clear vision and a strategy plan to bring the vision to life, but then perhaps even more importantly, an action plan that helps that helps uh, bring the strategy to life is particularly important. So that alignment of understanding where where you want to get to is is crucial. Uh, at Oricon, trying to unpack uh, and explain the why is particularly important, uh, particularly important. So it is crucial. Uh, that we're able to uh, articulate the benefits of a partnership and that's not just to you know perhaps at the leadership cohort but it's also to the you know all of oricon and and the team members if if we can explain why why relationship with ability works or other um, enterprises is important and the value that brings to oricon and that organization and and the wider community uh, we will have advocates across all of oricon Uh, obviously I just touched on it, but but it is particularly important that uh, that we have the support of senior management. Uh, building a partnership uh, in this space, trying to uh, deliver on, on social procurement uh, strategies, and trying to deliver social value to uh, organisations in the wider community, now, it's a long term. It's a long term play, and therefore it's a long term partnership. Uh, and there is a, a significant investment in both time and resources to to try and bring that uh, to try and bring that relationship to life uh outcomes aren't achieved overnight and they they don't necessarily occur within uh within the first few months or the first six months or even the first year so uh, i think just trying to set expectations uh in terms of you know not just the uh not just the commitment of resources, but also that uh, the timeline for for tangible outcomes is is particularly important. Uh, and then the last aspect I think that is that is crucial is is the measurement piece. You know, how do we actually measure ourselves and hold ourselves accountable as a partnership in terms of what we're doing? How do we how do we understand if what we are doing is making an impact and that we are sort of ticking off the actions to to achieve our end? outcome uh so that that the measurement piece is is really complex as uh as warren would articulate you know he's at uh, at the melbourne university and his team are trying to develop a measurement tool uh to try and unpack and define and measure i, I guess uh, uh social value but it is really complex uh, for instance how do you uh measure the impact that that employment opportunity has for an individual that gets them out of their home on a permanent arrangement versus, you know, what that impact is for uh, the wider community in, in terms of economic gain, et cetera, or in terms of the gain of uh, of different organisations with uh, with their increasing headcount or in increasing revenue. So trying to bring all those things together is really complicated from a, a measurement perspective, but in terms of being accountable, you just need to. Your action plan is critical to this, and being able to articulate what you want to achieve week on week, week week on week, month on month, quarter on quarter, year on year. So whether that's organising workshops, uh, trying to ideate with with the different team members, understanding what is best practice out there in the community or across different markets, or indeed across the different. Uh, countries or continents is really important. So you need to have your action plan and you need to keep yourself uh, to account. So that's the, uh, the macro, I guess, you, you know, the, uh, uh, the, some key thoughts, I, I, I guess, in terms of what you're doing that need to do to, to try and build that partnership. Uh, from more of a the micro uh, perspective, AbilityWorks is a not-for-profit social enterprise, uh, and they work with with people who have significant barriers to employment. Uh, the, the video that that you just saw is uh, is the video that we prepared with Ability Works in relation to a project, uh, a, a tram stop project that that we worked on to, uh, together, uh, which I will t- touch on in a tick. Uh, but Oricon and Transurban have been working with uh, Ability Works for the past three years. Uh, And we've been providing support to uh, AbilityWorks across a number of uh, skills and and activities, including reshaping their vision, their strategy, uh, trying to understand what their aspirations are and what their timelines are, and working with them to try and uh, ensure that that was robust and clear and understood uh, across the organisation. We've been working with with, with the leadership team in trying to enhance their skills uh, across the board. Obviously, both Transurban and uh, and Oricon have been advocating for and making introductions on behalf of of, uh, Billy Works and introducing them to our clients, to our partners as well. Uh, We've also had a a volunteer project where we have worked with the youngest and brightest within Oricon. Uh, and their task was to try and identify opportunities uh, within the rail market that that Ability Works could could uh, take up and uh, and open up new new work streams. So the idea is that Ability Works works in the works in the wire the wire fabrication space and the wire manufacturing space. So the challenge that our team was set was, you know, what opportunities are there out there for Ability Works to enter into that into the rail market. I think we landed uh, at a very large 80 opportunities at first cut, which we culled down to 30, which we've since culled down to five key opportunities. So so Ability Works are now out there are, are liaising with a range of our partners and, and our clients trying to open up opportunities. Uh, the video that, that you saw, obviously me talking to it won't be as impactful uh, as uh, the video itself, but, you know, as as the video said, uh, the best part of 18 months, two years ago now, uh, we were working uh, with a DOT on a tram stop project, and one of the things that we were really keen to do was to ensure that when um, designers are designing tram stops and, and other assets in time, hopefully, uh, that we ensure that the designs are really inclusive and they do take into account of of people with all abilities, uh, which was something that hadn't been done prior to that. So obviously, that project was well received by our client. Uh, It was well received by AbilityWorks. And I guess from our perspective, we're quite proud that that pilot project from 18 months ago uh, has now flowed into a new work stream with AbilityWorks. And again, we're working with Ability Works to, to uh, open up additional opportunities. I I guess in, in terms of the relationship that we that we have had with Ability Works over time, uh, you know, over that three year time frame, Ability Works uh, which as I've said before is a not is a not for profit, they've been able to increase their headcount and their revenue stream by approximately Forty percent over that that time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a huge call out to Sue and her team for being able to to just to continually to uh, to to build and to re-energize the team. And I think that you know from an Oricon perspective, we have played a very small part in that growth. Uh, but but being on that journey and working with Ability works, you know, is so rewarding for Oricon and our team members, particularly. Recognizing that that they've increased their headcount by 40%, which means that we're getting more people in the community into jobs. Uh, And what is uh, particularly pleasing is that Ability Work is is all about uh, providing purpose through employment. That's uh, Ability Works. As an example, we've been, as I said, we're working, we have been working with them for the best part of three years. Uh, another relationship which we have formed probably over the last uh, six months or so is with an organisation called called Spectrum, uh, and they support people with migrant and refugee backgrounds, uh, and their aim is to try and make them feel more at home in, it, in Australia. Uh, again, we launched a, a pilot which kicked off sort of late last year, uh, where... Uh, So a a pilot project across both Victoria and SA uh, and it's been termed uh, the Culturally and Linguistically Diverse or called CALD, it's a bit of a mouthful, I agree, uh, but the Talent Acquisition Program. So in essence, we are trying to, uh, both ourselves and Spectrum are trying to help those job seekers who have not grown up in Australia Mm. to find employment that match their skills. Uh, Obviously these new starters will join Oricon, uh but they will be uh they will be supported by both Oricon obviously, but also uh but also Spectrum over their tenure with with Oricon. Uh, but at the heart of the program, I guess, is just you know from an Oricon perspective, it's about trying to increase our workforce of diversity, introduce new ways of thinking, uh and to and to in, Enhance our innovation, but equally, as I have said, it's about opening up new employment opportunities uh, for that for those uh, groups that otherwise wouldn't uh, have employment opportunities. Mm-hmm. What is interesting is that there are a number of. Uh, uh, people who arrive in Australia with engineering degrees and backgrounds that don't have their engineering degree or qualifications are recognised in Australia. So we're working with uh, with Spectrum and these uh, new Oricon team members to, uh, to try and uh, convert that. And in terms of trying to measure that, I guess, as I said, we're we're at the early stages. We have set a target of trying to, to bring in uh, 20 20 new team members annually, and as I said, across both Victoria and SA.
0: Well, that's uh, extraordinarily inspiring, those two stories alone. Um, You know, you're changing lives uh, in our infrastructure, in our cities to make, you know, it really changes the life and the opportunities for people, which is incredible. Uh, And also, if anyone's ever met anyone who's come over with a qualification, the road to getting that recognised and back into professional work can be a long, expensive and hard one. So, again, changing lives, um, not just for those individuals, but their families, and no doubt there's a flow onto the communities. Uh, And I just want to share with you, there's a comment here from Alan. I think it's really inspirational, a really inspirational thing that Oricon are doing, Paul. And, Paul, I'm really curious to know what impact has this had on your workforce, knowing, you know, just two of these projects that give me goosebumps as I hear you talk about them and the impact (laughs) they have and the lives that they change.
1: Look, it's a really uh, interesting question. and P- Perhaps I don't necessarily have a polished answer, but but I think the, you know, uh, at the very... So, so Oricon is, you know, as I said before, it's a design and engineering and, and advisory business, but but uh, a lot of the people that work at Oricon have, have an engineering background, and I guess a lot of people that that join the engineering uh team, I guess, or, or, or pick up engineering is because they have an investment in community and they want to uh, improve it, to reshape it, to enhance it over time. So most of the people that work at Oricon are really invested in social procurement, but particularly social value. Uh, what is really important, as I said earlier, is being able to articulate the why because uh, everyone wants to understand why, why we're being asked to be involved in something. But the the beauty of Oricon, I guess, is that once we explain the why, it's easily understood and recognised and acted upon. So uh, finding interest across uh, across Oricon to be involved in new uh, initiatives in this space is not a difficult uh, challenge at all. I think the other aspect...
0: It to yes. the heart of engineers as well, doesn't it? You talked about part Absolutely. of the why is solving community issues. Well, what do engineers love to do? They love to solve problems. And you've got an incredible amount of intelligence and brain power there to, to make a huge difference.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, the the other aspect that, again, it's so difficult to measure, like, uh, but just the, it really enhances the culture of the place and it, it really it builds upon the excitement and the energy and the passion that our team members have, you know, uh, for the team to know that, that uh, or the Oricon team, I guess per se, to, to know that the business is invested in, in helping the wider community, uh, I think really, really is important for, for uh, Oricon.
0: Yeah. So, Paul, um, thank you. And I imagine there's a great sense of pride, not just in the infrastructure that um, that you're part of building, but also the, t- the lives that you change. There's two final questions that I'd love to ask you uh, before we move to Janet. There is a question in the Q&A from Kay, which I'll come back to at the Q&A section, just to make sure um, I allow plenty of time for our other panellists sure. as well. But um, the, the next question is, what are some simple things organisations can do? You're three years in and you're doing an incredible amount. And I'm sure that when you first started out, Um, it wasn't all of these things so if if I am starting out in an organisation on my journey to social procurement what are some simple things that organisations can do that will have a a positive impact on the success of a partnership?
1: Cool I'll try I've been doing lots of talking (laughs) so I'll I'll try and condense it into two key areas areas if I can And what what should you do and then I guess, you know, what are some you know some simple things that you can do? They're, they're aligned but not quite the same. So, so I think as I touched on before very quickly, you need a vision, you need a strategy. So you need to sort of understand where you're going. And I guess why that's really important is because you need to articulate the why uh, and you need to explain the why not just to the uh, our leadership team to uh, to get that investment, but as I said before, you need to explain the why for the wider cohort to understand why we're doing it, and then to have advocates across the business, and then to start to uh, to build that movement. I guess uh, as I touched on, you need the senior support because when you're involved in these partnerships, as I said before, uh, there you don't get immediate results, and it's about a partnership, and all good partnerships take take time. To blossom, so uh, you don't get immediate results. Uh, so therefore, it's really critical that you have the buy-in from the senior leaders, not just for resources but for timeline. Uh, and as I touched on before, I think what is important is recognizing, you know, it is setting yourself some goals that are measurable. They may not be the really complex. Uh, measurement tool about you know uh am i getting value for devoting my resources to this project rather than a volunteer project uh, but you certainly want to hold yourself to account to show that you are progressing and then you are moving to uh, delivering on your vision and uh uh and just your, your your strategy but i think most important i guess uh it's it's about trying to drag in people rather than than just yourself. So you need to find opportunities to bring others into the social procurement conversation, or the social value conversation. Uh, it's bigger than it's bigger than one person. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than my steerco, It's bigger than Oricon. You know, uh, we all have to sort of pitch it together to to try and uh, help solve and uh, offer up ideas. Uh, in this, in this arena. Uh, so it's just recognising for me that you can't do it on your own. Uh, it is about sharing ideas and exploring ideas with like-minded people and organisations, um, whether those organisations are in consulting or engineering or whether they're in banking or finance or whether they're in Australia or America or uh, Asia or the UK, you know, I, I think just trying to understand what everyone else is doing is great. And uh, trying to unpack what is best practice is also really important. And then I think just really starting to un- to recognise, I guess, that this this concept, I guess, of trying to deliver on social value is relatively new. And there is no one way to do it. There is no correct way to do it. And there is no best way to do it. Uh, each each organisation and each each partnership is unique, uh, and you, there will be. You have to find your own your own pathway and uh, live your own journey. But I think what mo- is most important, you've got to roll your sleeves up and, and get in there, really.
0: Fantastic advice. Um, and particularly when you're starting out, it's sometimes a matter of test and learn. When you're doing something, new. test it, see if it works. If it doesn't, you've learned something and continue on your journey. So thanks for that. And when I put my change manager hat on, and all the things he said about creating a vision, getting people on board, having sponsorship from the most senior level, this is really about driving change in how we do business in our organisations, which remember that because that does require more than one person and does require some change management capability to do that and to lead that as complex stuff. So Paul, for my final question for you, what are some primary barriers to to the success of social procurement In your industry what are the top one or two barriers that you've come across
1: so i i i think the one uh, under understanding is is uh a barrier and understanding sort of why we're investing time in social procurement and social value is a barrier uh, not all people are on board or not all organisations are on board or they don't understand it, they don't understand the value. So I think that is, you know, has been, I guess, a significant barrier. Uh, so I think that's why it's really important for organisations to understand their why uh, and be able to really clearly articulate that 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 starts to break down uh, some of those uh, barriers as well. And I think the other aspect of, I guess, is the procurement supply chain is also really, really complex as well. So uh, even though we might, in uh, as an example, introduce some of our partners to the government who are driving social procurement, they're not the ones that are actually uh, uh, are delivering the major projects. So there's a supply chain there that they're, you know, uh, handing responsibility over or the project over to, to a, uh, a build partner, for instance, who has many, many... Uh, different supply chain partners as well. So, um, trying to unpack that and trying to work out where to play is uh, is uh, particularly important.
0: And um, Paul, it's been an absolute honour for Abercrombie consultants to have partnered with Oracle and AbilityWorks and see the outcomes you've achieved. It's been extraordinary and the effort you've put in. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. We'll come back to you at the end because there are some questions that I think are for you, Paul. So we'll come back to that in Q and A. Thanks so much. So to our next speaker, Janet, wonderful to have you here, Janet Cribb. So Janet is the CEO of Tradeswomen Australia Group. Uh, Tradeswomen Australia is a not-for-profit and a social benefit provider. Um, and in a minute, you're going to be um, pinned so that everyone can see you up nice and clear. And we'll let um, Paul take a step back and take a bit of a rest there. Um, So, Janet, your background actually um, is you've got a bachelor's degree in social work and social sciences. Um, you're actually the past mayor of the city of Port Phillip. So you, you bring a lens to this, which is a local government lens, which is really um, fascinating for us, another perspective. Um, but you've also uh, been very up close and personal um, with those uh, people in the community who've needed further assistance, with your uh, role with the, as the manager of Bushfire Recovery Program, um, as a uh, director of fundraising, marketing and comms uh, for Catholic Care, You're also the interim CEO for St Kilda Community Housing and in your own consulting business at um, Janet Cribs Consulting. So, I understand the business world. Ben, if I could just ask you to pin Janet to the screen now and um, unpin Paul, that would be fantastic for our viewers so they can see. And I can see Janet more clearly that way as well. It would be terrific. And now, as the CEO for Tradeswomen Australia. So, welcome, Janet. Thank you for your time. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Oh, Lana, thank you you so much.
3: And um, thank you for the opportunity. I, I feel like, Paul, being the expert, I remember once someone saying, An ex is unknown and a pert is a drip, so an expert is an unknown drip and it's stuck with me forever, you know. So every time I hear the word expert, that's what I think first up. So um, I have have that trepidation of, of, um, you know, being the imposter when I I feel like, you know, I have to be the expert. Um, I can do my bit um, and, uh, like Paul, I think that uh, we all try and do our part in the world. Um, and can I just say, Paul, that was really inspirational, and I'm really scared now because you know you've covered so much of um, what I I was going to relay as well. So let's see if we can not um, duplicate, and I can find something that's a little bit uh, a little bit different in terms of you know how we we put things. But thank you for the opportunity.
0: And fabulous and we'll take you as as you come it uh, doesn't matter you know how experienced we all are and how senior we become in our roles or whatever it might be we can all experience imposter syndrome absolutely uh, yeah. and uh, and i totally understand understand that standing here as the director of leadership and change and not the director of social procurement in our organization but also share the passion uh for this in our organization so um janet would love to um just hear a bit about you, you know who are you janet and who is Tradeswomen Australia Group, if you can
3: share. Well, I can. I can share a bit about Tradeswomen Australia Group. Um, It's a non-for-profit organisation which is dedicated to um, gender equality and empowerment for girls and women to access, participate and succeed in trades. Uh, We work towards this mission by delivering uh, programs in partnership with governments and corporations and we have a whole range of diverse stakeholders and, um, you know, we have about 5,500 women who are a part of our, our network as members. And um, considering that really trades in non-traditional trades for women, there's only 2% participation. There's a, there's a long way to go to um, increase women's participation in that. And so that's what we aspire to do. Um, and we do that in different ways. Our, our founder, Fiona McDonald. Um, A really inspirational woman um, comes from the automotive industry and uh, set this up so that uh, set up Trades Women Australia so that we could meet the challenge of of women accessing and participating in in this sector and and has put around her uh, a really amazing board who are really skilled and committed and are committed to the vision and the mission and do so, you know, in a pro bono way. Um, and I think that that that's um, really commendable because it's quite it's quite a new entity. It's only been around for about three years, and um, and so it's it's covered a lot of ground in that in that time. Uh, we also have a, a subsidiary uh, entity called um, Tradeswomen Australia Community Foundation. It's also governed by its own board, and it really focuses on uh, supporting women. Girls and women in who are living in vulnerable situations or experiencing disadvantage. So, it's um, it's uh, that's the the main focus for us at uh, at Trades Women in terms about what our mission was when we when we started out.
0: Fantastic. I'm so pleased to have your perspective here today and really, really um, very encouraged to hear the work you're doing uh, in a past life. I uh, I did run as a CEO an engineering manufacturing businesses supplying to um, heavy vehicle industry and there was a vast absence of women, um, both in our supplier partners, our customer partners and in our own organisation uh, and trying to encourage women to come and stay. That's definitely a huge challenge. So I yeah. uh, wish I hadn't known you back then. And yeah. certainly we'll would would be part, asking you to partner with them now. I think that's terrific, really fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, Janet, i um, interested to hear from you. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges you're seeing as a partner organisation, partnering with business? So I think uh, Paul's covered quite
3: a uh, covered it quite lovely, really, uh, when uh, he was explaining the challenges. They're, they're very similar, you know, like across the board. Um, for us specifically at the moment, if I just think currently front of mind, um, the challenges for the construction site to uh, implement the um, building equity policy. That uh, is uh, in play at the moment. They've got two years to to meet the KPIs around mental health, gender, and um, uh, safety. That that it's uh, it's a really it's a big thing in terms of of uh, when they go for their tenders to be able to demonstrate uh, the the KPIs that they are needing to to meet. Uh, I think um, one of the biggest challenges really is uh, trying to actually understand what the issue is and uh, what the problem is that you're trying to solve and um, and developing some kind of what we call a theory of change. You know, if you, if you do this, then, you know, we'll get this outcome and the impact is going to be this. So it's um, really been able to get together to articulate across the, all the spheres of the, of the organisation and the partners that you're working with.
0: Fantastic. And what's been important in being able to do that theory of change piece well?
3: Um, I think being clear yourself within the organisation first about what it is that you're capable of and what your capacity is. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you're working in relationship with with any of your partners, that you sit down and you, you all understand that you're on the same page. And that's about, you know, that takes time, like Paul was saying. It does take time. It does take energy. It does take effort. And um, the relationship building doesn't happen overnight, and uh, and getting to know each other and uh, and making sure that you're all you know working towards the same the same um, outcome is uh, is crucial. Without that, um, mm. you know nothing's gonna nothing's gonna change. And and everybody comes in it at a different point, and everyone has a different understanding.
0: So that alignment piece comes up once again and um, sometimes you do have to go back to asking the basic questions. What do we want to achieve here? What does success look like? What can we both contribute? So I think it's really sage advice as well for people to take on. Start with some really straightforward basics and get those right before we can move forward, which is terrific. Mm. So um, for you, Janet, what would a successful partnership look like to you? If you could paint a picture of that for our audience, I think that would be Quite helpful, and perhaps there's some examples of a successful partnership that um, that might help to illustrate that.
3: Um, I think uh, when I was thinking about that, as Paul was talking for us, um, our partnership with WorkSafe uh, at the moment, uh, I think is a really um, good example of uh, what what uh, two entities can do together to deliver a really good outcome around uh, social engagement, social procurement and adding social value. Um, We're uh, working currently in the automotive industry uh, across, it's a pilot program, across um, 100 sites where uh, we're delivering um, uh, mental health um, and wellbeing training, diversity, inclusion, conscious and unconscious bias training, um, uh, bystander training, and leadership, um, you know, training to uh, ensure that uh, the the theories that we're trying to put through and the and the um, learning and the training is actually uh, embedded throughout the organisation. So I think uh, Paul covered it before too by saying it's really important to have the executive on board um, and and middle management, the HR people, and the supervisors of the staff to um, make sure that. That everybody understands what the organisation is trying to do, and that um, and really knowing that if your mental health is is uh, good in the organisation, if it's a safe place to work, and uh, and people feel that they're valued, then absenteeism goes down, um, the retention in the workforce goes up, and the productivity actually goes up as well. And so, with WorkSafe, we've been able to estimate that um that for every dollar spent, you get the there's $2.10 that is returned and uh, a much healthier uh workplace. Not just, you know, like for us, our primary focus obviously is to ensure that it's a safe workplace for for women to be able to to be in, but it's that it's safe uh, for everybody to work in means that um, everybody is actually uh, operating at an optimum um, level within themselves, and feeling like they're making a meaningful contribution, and being part of something that's meaningful as well.
0: That's terrific. And in terms of, um, you know, what what do you need organisations to do to help make that successful for social enterprises? If you're, if I'm an organisation here, and I'm embarking on, or, or maybe already engaged in, a partnership with a um, a social enterprise or a social benefit provider. What do you need from us? What do you need from organisations for
3: this to work well? Um, A a willingness to um, uh, define the problem, um, to actually understand what it is uh, that you're actually trying to change and what you're trying to do, what it is that you're working for. Um, Most of what Paul was talking about before in terms of uh, uh, building some evidence base that uh, underpins the, the way that you you um, want to, to make sure that what you're doing is uh, is both, you know, sustainable. That it, that there's a, an economic return. It's good for the environment. It's creating jobs. People are retained. The workforce is more satisfied. And that, you know, the bottom line is that productivity does go up. And so that most for most people, that um, that return on investment financially is a really big incentive so that it does both is um, is fantastic, you know, and, and understanding that there is, you know, uh, a really good sense of evidence base that um, for us we've been able to, particularly for myself in another sector where I chair an organisation called uh, Wellsprings for Women and we work in, uh, in an area in Dandenong that's highly disadvantaged, mostly with refugees, asylum seekers, uh, people who are from new cultures settling into community and in our women's support program. We've done a social return on investment and found that for every dollar we spend, we have $12.90 that comes back to the community in terms of, of um, how that how that plays out and how important it is and what benefit goes out to the rest of the community um, when you you actually uh, take account of and then measure what it is that you're doing. Um, And we did that with Think Impact, who are an international organisation that do social return on investment evaluation. So there are ways of being able to measure what you do actually counts. And Mm -hmm. I know in our our WorkWell project, that we, we take a baseline for uh, where the people, where the organisations are at, we look at what they have in terms of policies, procedures, practices, and then um, run uh, modules through and their toolbox talks and they then are given surveys, poll surveys, so that each, um, each module, the boots on the ground are actually surveyed to um, to make sure that what we're doing is effective and action, and is evidence-based so that, that um, we're, we're, we're refining all the time if something needs to be refined and it, something's not working or something's working really well, that that's, that's, um, that's a way of us being able to monitor and evaluate what it is that we do.
0: That's, that's fantastic. And I think, um, you know, one of the key things there when you're starting to measure is start with what you can measure and then build your maturity around it as you go, um, because that will come as you, as you grow and learn about what to measure and maybe have more resources allocated. Start with what you can measure. Indeed, indeed. Yeah,
3: yeah. And it's always about partnerships. It's always about relationships. And it's always about bringing other people on board with to work with you, not just to try and do it on your own.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And you mentioned, you know, it does. it's from the very most senior management all the way down to those who are actually engaging in the program and needing to lead it and deliver it on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes they are forgotten in the early stages of forming that strategy and um, uh, planning out what it's going to look like and getting people's buying in and on board, but it's so important because they're the ones that, at the end of the day that's who you're asking to do their job differently to have a better impact, which is great. Um, One final question for you, Janet, which is um, what are some simple things that organisations can do that impact the success of the partnership? Are there anything that you haven't already mentioned and you may have perhaps covered this, but is there anything else that's really, you know, do this, if you do nothing else, do this, that we haven't yet covered I
3: suppose if there's nothing else you do this is look at your recruitment process um, and uh, look at your conscious unconscious biases in in how you recruit, because that's a great way to um, to influence, you know, good social outcomes is to actually take a look at how you're recruiting the people that you have working for you and, you know, actions speak louder than words. And, you know, and it's walk your talk. So I think if there's one thing that all organisations can do uh, um, immediately is to actually look at the bias in their recruitment process. And, um, and that will speak volumes in relation to who you employ and how you employ and what support
0: you you provide and, you know, what what benefits you gain. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate um, what you've shared today and your perspective. And also thank you for the incredible work that you do uh, for our community, uh, for women, but also for those that have a flow and benefit from the work you do with women. So wonderful to have you here. And um, hang around because there's some Q&As and we'll come back to you during that. So thank you so much, Janet. Thanks. So uh, just to let you know that um, our third guest speaker has had some challenges and hasn't been able to join us. So I'm so, so excited and pleased to be able to invite James McHugh, my wonderful colleague at Apricot Consulting, and um, the one that uh, if you've partnered with Apricot around social procurement, you most likely would have met James before and had the pleasure of working with him. Um, so James, welcome and thank you for being here today. So For those that might not have met you, you are the Head of Corporate Social Sustainability at Apricot Consulting. Uh, And at the moment you're studying your Executive MBA with a focus on social impact, which is fabulous because you keep bringing rich information and experiences from that into the work that you're already doing. That builds on your Bachelor of Social Work um, and loads of experience in that space, really understanding the challenges that are faced by a huge range of people in our community. So um, it's actually wonderful to have you in the team, the perspective and experience that you bring incredibly humble in terms of what, what you've done um, in your life before Apricot and I know you're making a really wonderful difference in building partnerships between our organisations and um, social enterprises and so social benefit providers. So welcome today James.
2: Well, th- well thank you Lana and uh, you've really set me up there so I uh, appreciate the introduction uh, but yeah great to be joining everyone from I'm Calling In. From Wonderland here in uh, in Melbourne, so it's nice to be joining everyone, even if it's a, a last minute dash in. So hopefully, I can add yeah. some value to the conversation. You
0: saved the day, and we're so great with all. This. <laughs> so, um, so um, I guess um, to you first, you know, maybe you can describe, probably better than I can. What do you do at Apricot, James?
2: Yeah, sure. So I might even start. Uh, Back before at Apricot, you touched on. I started my career in, as a social worker, uh, so I worked in not-for-profit and community services, and uh, got a really, uh, I suppose, first-hand uh, understanding of how some of these organisations, the not-for-profit organisations, have to be able to balance this, uh, the social value that they're trying to create, whilst also doing it in a way that is commercially vi- uh, viable and sustainable as well. And so, there's some really unique and uh, challenges that come with that as well. And so I learned a lot in that space uh, about uh, how to do that uh, and how to do that uh, well. Um, and so I try and bring that into the conversations that we're having now with our corporate uh, corporate clients around uh, what social value looks like and uh, what, are, what are some of the conversations they should be having with uh, having with their social uh, benefit providers uh, through that, that procurement process. So, joined Apricot uh, coming up to three years ago. Uh, Apricot, uh, I knew, had the, the reputation of doing a lot of work in CSR. Um, and I really came into the, the business at the time knowing that social procurement was really becoming more and more topical at the time. We had seen that the Victorian Government Social Procurement Framework was handed down in 2018 and that uh, from my conversations I'd had with people that there were some challenges around, well, how do we actually articulate that in a meaningful and sustainable way? And so coming into Apricot Consulting, that was really something that I wanted to uh, really drive that we as a consulting firm, we could play a meaningful role as an intermediary to be able to, I suppose, have that conversation between the not-for-profit, the social enterprise, Indigenous businesses, those social benefit suppliers and our corporate clients. And I think that's, a, I might go into it a little bit more in a few moments' time, that two-way conversation is, is just absolutely critical. So i uh, been working in that for now the last three years um, and have had the pleasure work with working with some of our clients around developing uh, what we think is best practice to social procurement, um, We developed a social procurement playbook, which is a, a structured process around uh, around matching and then implementation and measurement of social value. And, uh, and, and throughout that process is the education piece and, and hence our partnership with uh, the Melbourne University School of Government as well, so, uh, which I'll, I'm sure we'll get to in a second.
0: Fantastic. Really appreciate that, James. And there's one thing you mentioned in there. And for those that might be new to social procurement, it might be the first time they've heard of it. You talked about the Victorian Government Social Procurement Framework. Um, if you're moving into this space, how important is it that you're familiar with that and uh, have an understanding of it?
2: Uh, it's absolutely critical for any uh, for any government buyers. They have to be familiar with uh, that uh, that framework if they're they're buying from the Victorian government. Um, but more broadly, uh, it, it's it's important to understand what is those key. I suppose what what how do we define what social value in the context of social procurement is uh, because there's a lot of ambiguity uh, around that there's a lot of uh, a lot of you know conversations going on around at the moment about what that is and what that should look like Um, but what we have now as starting points is those frameworks and, and state governments are, are slowly introducing those at the moment. Um, I often reference the Victorian government's one because that was the first one. I'm in Victoria, so it's the one I interact with, with the most. Uh, but it is the one that I suppose has set the tone for other states and territories to, to look towards, to, to look at, well, what, what, are those, uh, what are those key target areas and those, those outcomes that we're looking for?
0: Fantastic. I love it. So I, I have understood from uh, multiple people that Victoria has led the way in social procurement. So I'm thinking, James, that maybe we should lobby for Victorian number plates to change the slogan to leading the way in social procurement from whatever it is today. What is it today? Someone put it in the chat. I've actually forgotten. <laughs> if Garden State still? I'd love to know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think I think we have to be careful, Lana. I don't think it's all Victorians on this chat. So
0: uh. <laughs> Oh my some controversy in the chat. I'm very happy. Yeah. I'm very happy for someone to object and provide a different view on that. That's terrific. <laughs> so talking about definitions, James, mm-hmm. how do you define social procurement?
2: Yeah, well, really simply stated, social procurement is about the social value that you create above and beyond the goods and services that you might procure. So if you Google it, that's what you'll get. Uh, But it's also about... Uh, and this is my, I suppose, definition as well, it's about the conversations that you're having with your social benefit suppliers about, well, how do we contribute more broadly to the outcomes that you're trying to achieve? So help us understand what you're trying to achieve and then let us see what we can do as a partner to be able to further your your social value that you're creating through your business model. And likewise, it's that start of that two-way conversation where those social benefits, for providers and suppliers are able to understand a little bit better about the commercial landscape, the markets that they're playing in and how that they can play a more uh, meaningful role and a a scalable role, I suppose, uh, from a commercial lens too.
0: Mm, That's terrific. And, um, James, what's great about you being our uh, our speaker today, even though it wasn't, wasn't quite the plan, is that you actually can, you've worked between organisations and uh, the uh, social enterprises, social benefit providers, and I'm keen to understand from what you've observed in your experiences, what are some of the key challenges in success of social procurement?
2: Yeah, uh, well, I might sort of split it between the two. So what I've seen from the, I suppose, the buyer side, that the... the you know the corporate side, and then the uh, and then the social benefit provider side, uh, because I think they they sort of meet in the middle a little bit. Um, so from our you know our commercial our corporate clients, uh, I, I think you know Paul touched on it touched on it quite well. He talked about you know being able to explain the why, and then having advocates in the business to be able to advocate on behalf of social procurements, um, and the two are connected. If you understand the why, you're more likely to become an. advocate advocate for it. Um, And so, uh, hence what we did with, uh, you know, Melbourne University and sort of reaching out to them and saying, look, this is is a real opportunity. We need to be able to educate the market at a mass scale around, well, what's the value of social procurement? Sure, it can help you win tenders. Sure, it can help you meet, you know, targets. Uh, But also, it's, it's about the social value that you can create through your operations and it's the meaning uh, it's the meaningful uh, elements to work that we're all looking for and I think if there's anything that we've sort of pulled out of the last couple of years it's that we all want to be working in jobs that we feel like we're doing some some real good for the community. so I think there's a really unique opportunity uh, at the moment and I know t- Janet sort of touched on this a little bit in her response is that uh, you know that we can uh, invite you know, a lot of people into that conversation around, well, actually, you're, you, you are a procurement person, but you're, you're creating a lot of community good in doing so. Um, and so I think it's about being able to shine a light on that. Uh, and so it, that education piece is really critical for for those uh, the the corporate side. On the on the side of the uh, I suppose the social benefit suppliers, it's being able to tap in and access uh, you know the skills and the expertise of their of the buyers, uh, and to be able to say, look, you know, where our business model is a little bit different. If you're a social enterprise, you have to create social value, uh, and uh, and so that that can throw up a bit of a, a challenge. Around how we balance those two agendas uh, and where they might you know at times compete or clash and so being able to sort of navigate that and learn from uh, from your uh, from those that are procuring you from the the buyers that are procuring you around well I can I can educate them about our challenges but also what can I learn about how we can manage the commercial side a little bit more effectively so we can we can create more value we can hire more people we can create more meaningful employment opportunities for the uh, for, for the community
0: so some of the complexities I'm hearing you say is that the agendas are different from the buyer to the supplier um, but also the cultures are different potentially as well and that does take some work to un- grow understanding but also you know both parties learning from each other seeing what yep. can from each other that's really important to know because I think we can go into this um, not having done it before and not understand those complexities and then how to navigate them
2: Absolutely, and I think that education as well, and having that conversation, it breaks down some of the frustration. Uh, so I've had conversations with you know some really large organisations uh, in the construction infrastructure sector, and they they come to us and they say, "I don't, I, I'm struggling to understand. You know, why are we having challenges around delivery, around timelines? Uh, why is that?" And so, but when you're able to sit down, you're able to have a conversation with all the relevant stakeholders in the room, then that. Understanding comes, and we're able to create a a, a, a productive uh, and constructive path forward there. Um, so so it is it is critical to be able to have those lines of communication open.
0: Beautiful. Um, and if I'm someone that, who is trying to build advocates inside my organisation um, and those that I'm trying to convince, looking for what are the commercial benefits of this, they understand the social, but they want to understand the commercial. What are some of the commercial benefits of social procurement?
2: Yeah, so certainly, so depending on the nature of the contract, there might be bonuses attached to meeting those particular targets, whether it's Indigenous procurement, social enterprise procurement, all of that. But aside from those, uh, again, Paul and, and and Janet have touched on this a little bit. It's about, you know, the engagement that your staff uh, can, can be generated when they're working on projects that are creating value above and beyond, say, building a road or building a building, as, as, as important as they are. Uh and and that's really critical. I mean, one of the key themes that we've heard over the past couple of years is about that talent retention. And we've all heard about the you know, the great the great resignation or the great relocation or whatever you want to call it. If you want to retain key talents, you've got to be able to go above and beyond just uh I'm gonna pay you a little bit more to stay, please stay. You've got to be able to invite People in that uh, you know that want to do good into that conversation to be able to say, look, this is how we're making an impact. Can you be a part of it?
0: Fantastic, I love it. And final question, or second last question for you, actually, James, is what are some simple things organisations or procurement teams can do that impact the success of the partnership?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, I think it's uh, you know, firstly, I think it's about reflecting on uh, their own biases. At the, uh, as well, and I've just seen a comment come up on the chat, and I think you know I want to draw attention to it because I think it's a really good point. Is that we can't expect all the time that the the social benefit providers that we're working with are going to be able to deliver in the way that we expect. So, what what are the biases that we consciously or unconsciously hold, and because we're going to need to break that down. Uh, and that's okay. We've all got them, um, but they do need to be challenged, and they do need to be broken down for us to be able to go on a meaningful you know, journey around partnerships. Um, there, so I think that that first point of call has to be around around well, what are the the internal biases that we have at the moment? What's our understanding of social procurement, and 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 you know, are we just applying you know the same lens that we have when it comes to procuring any entity, and thinking like you know that. It's about, you know, a couple of volunteer days attached to that or, or because clearly that's going to have, a you know, a potentially a, a, a detrimental outcome on on the partnership.
0: Mm, terrific. Thank you so much. And a final question for you, James, you've emphasised the importance of education, uh, people understanding social procurement, the benefits it can have and how to approach it. uh can you help us understand? You know, if if you're at the point where you are looking to do further education and training, uh, where do we go? What, what's the what are the options, and why do it?
2: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I'm going to say the first first place is you know the Melbourne University eLearn uh, that we've got uh, coming up uh, at the moment. That's a really light and lean one hour uh, eLearn tool. That's uh, that's gives, I suppose, the basics around what social procurement is, what social value is, uh, touches a little bit on some of the challenges, and, and, and how your organisation can can be uh, play a meaningful part in that. So, I think that's a good opportunity, and I'm sure we'll have a bit more information coming up around, uh, around that. Um, but outside of that, there's some terrific resources out there. If you just have a Google search, uh, Supply Nation provides some really good uh, good resources up there. Janet, I see you've got Social Traders—the badge up behind you. They've also got some terrific resources for um, for um, for companies wanting to get a bit more information about about social enterprise. Uh, you, if you're in Victoria, have a look at the Social Enterprise Network uh, (SEN). That's also a terrific website as well. Uh, Buyability is another one. I could I could continue continue on but if you have a bit of a a bit of a look it it doesn't take too much to be able to get you know some really good resources to start with uh start having those conversations at at your organization
0: that's terrific i love that and sometimes um when you are trying to drive a change like this that education piece is important i love the idea of a one hour e learn something you can share with all your key stakeholders internally and externally just to get everyone on the same page so Mm. Really, really appreciate you coming along today, James, and, and sharing that. And um, now um, uh, let's spotlight all of our panelists if we can. I'm hoping we can do that. Otherwise, we might just need to unspotlight me. And oh, there we go. We've done it. Fantastic. So, welcome back, everyone. We've got a couple of questions in the chat, and I'm just going to remind our audience if you've got a question you'd like to ask, pop it in the chat now because I'm going to go to those questions now. Um, The first one, Kay's been waiting very patiently. She was the first to post this, and this one's for you, Paul. So, Paul, how has Oricon raised awareness of accessibility needs with work teams? I'll get you to answer that, and then I'll ask her follow-on questions. Have you raised awareness of accessibility needs with work teams?
1: Thanks, Lana. Thanks, Kay. Uh, Just before I answer that, there was one fundamental uh, simple step that we need to do in terms of uh, highlighting, you know, what what you would do to kick off. And I can't believe I didn't mention it because it's probably the most important one, which is you need to share your success stories, no matter how little they are. So you need to share the good news stories. Uh, uh, In isolation, they may not seem much but once you build your small success on top of the next success on top of the next success that's how you get your momentum so uh, no matter how small you think your gain is or the traction that you get talk about it uh share it let everyone know about it because uh that's how you build momentum uh so that was that one uh, apologies uh, the, the, the question again was sorry i'm just looking it's okay out.
0: question so how has oricon raised awareness of accessibility needs with work teams
1: Sure. So uh, we actually have a, uh, a team that's a dedicated to mobility. So it's the uh, user-centred design team and mobility team. So mm-hmm. they they first came up with this concept in Oricon, you know, perhaps, as I said, two, two years ago. So they are employed, I guess, we, we reach out to them on all of our... Uh, infrastructure projects to get feedback where we are involved in in the design aspects of it so from a design perspective and an oricon perspective if we're designing infrastructure whether that's road rail water energy industrial manufacturing we will reach out to this team for their advice and their support on how we can best best to design that sorry and i should have said Buildings in particular, right? Because we, uh, but we design the buildings as well, so they're involved uh, in the design stage. But I guess what's really important is that you know, Oricon, you know, we're a large organisation, but we only work on a small proportion of all the inf- of on all the infrastructure projects. So uh, we also act in sort of a, a, an advisory capacity into t- government. So. Uh, Even if we're not, you know, uh, an advisor to the government, we're advocating to the government about the types of things that they can be doing. So the same members of that team are out there advocating to government to let them, you know, I I, I guess to try and help them understand of the difficulties with design historically and how we can improve it moving forward. And, again, uh, that's making sure that we cover off with... uh, with both the senior execs, I guess, if that makes sense, are within, within government. And we're also dealing with, uh, with the project level managers as well. Because I think, you know, Janet raised a really good point before. Uh, sometimes you can have your vision and your strategy, but unless it cascades all the way down and the people on the ground actually understand it and own it and uh, deliver to it, it, or deliver to it, it won't go anywhere. So. So uh, making sure that we're advocating for that those types of designs and the importance of it is something that, that we do as well.
0: Thanks, Paul. That's terrific. And just to make sure we cover all of Kay's questions that she's posed here, you may have answered some of them in part. Has Oricon employed disabled workers to share lived experience or consulted with communities? What other ways has it shared insights? I think you might have covered that, but if there's anything further you'd like to add.
1: yeah. I- I think the, the answer is yes, we have, but there's a lot more work to do. Uh, how do we share that? The the answer the, the question sort of left left my screen there. Sorry, uh, but look, I, I would say that there's room that there is room to move, obviously, on that. You know, and it's it's an area that that we want to uh, improve upon. But we certainly uh, are working with Ability Works and trying to build up their their new work stream, I guess, uh, and so we're taking the uh, AbilityWorks view, but we're also trying to connect AbilityWorks with, uh, you know, with with the government and other agencies as well.
0: Fantastic. That's brilliant. Um, this is the one for both of you. I'm going to go to Janet first. Brenda's asked, I'm interested in how you have addressed standards of behaviour, governance and oversight to protect vulnerable people in this process
1: so I think that was for me as well is that correct
0: doesn't specify it probably is one that you may both be able to answer so perhaps while Janet's thinking on it I'll come back to her Paul would you like to begin and also James if you want to add just let me know and I'll come to
1: you as well so uh, perhaps there's a few levels I, I, I guess step number one is you know, from an Oracon perspective, before we engage with a uh, in a partnership, we will, you know, uh, have an independent organisation analyse that social enterprise to make sure that that they are above board and, and and that they are doing what they need to do and they are, you know, a, a respected in the communities. So I think you need to do your, your due diligence around that, um, and I think that is is crucial. Uh, the other aspect, I guess, is around, once once you have that relationship in place, you want to be, you know, our SteerCo, I, I guess, acts as that, to governance type of tool. So it's checking in, not just progress around, you know, are you a delivering to program? It's more about, you know, are we, you know, are, are our behaviours right? Are we culturally doing the right thing? Uh, are we, is it a respectful relationship or, or, or partnership? You know? Do we each have an equal voice? So, so I think that the governance structure allows for any, uh, you know, perhaps poor behaviours or uh, or unusual, you know, uh, behaviours to to be talked to and talked about, if that makes sense. And then I think the third the third aspect as well is that, uh, you know, at Oricon, you know, again, you know, we have, uh, 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 you know. Passionate people who want to uh, get involved—they have strong views. They want to use their energy to try and, you know, shape, change the community. There's different mechanisms by which uh, those individuals are able to put their hand up and raise a concern. So whether that is directly to line managers or leaders within the business, or whether that's via, you know, perhaps, uh, the whistleblower policy as well. If there's unusual behaviours that people see and or behaviours that they don't like, there's ability for those individuals to take action as well.
0: Thank you, Paul. So, um, Jenna, I'm just going to read the question again and I'll come to a um, really good question from Brenda. Thank you for asking this. I'm interested in how you've addressed the standards of behaviour, governance and oversight to protect vulnerable people in this process. Sorry, yes, of course. Thank you. Um,
3: yeah, it's a great question and, uh, and a really important one and one that we, uh, uh, it's front of mind for us because of the, the people that we work with also. Um, I think having a really strong governance structure, um, ensuring that uh, our processes and procedures, our policies, the way the policies are implemented, our reporting, the risks, it, incidences, that that's really robust um, and that all of those procedures then are implemented in the organisation. We have a really strong code of conduct. We have a really strong value system. Um, those are the, the kind of guiding lights, I suppose, in overarching to ensure that, that um, we walk our talk and um, and practise what we preach. And that's really important to us, incredibly important to us. So the respectful relationship, is, as um, Paul was saying, is uh, where where it's at, basically, you know, like what we're doing is, you know, being, being in, a, in a society where respect is afforded to all and that, that's what we want to see. Um, so that, that's the way we conduct ourselves and we, we ensure that because we have a, a code of conduct that, you know, we all sign up on to and that um, any kind of deviations or breaches of that, you know, there's consequences. So uh, it's a it's a way of um, uh, rem, 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 reminding us to be human.
0: Thank you. James, did you want to add anything further? Uh, And then I'll go to our, we've got a final question in the chat that I would love to pose as well.
2: Oh, look, uh, not too much to add uh, apart from what Paul and uh, Janet have already touched on, uh, but maybe just one quick uh, one quick thing, just more to the, I suppose, the buyers, the corporate buyers in this is that you have to be prepared to change. Uh, so uh, there are things that you need when you're engaging in social procurement that are going to be barriers for your suppliers, for your, pro- uh, your providers to be able to work productively with you. And so there's going to have to be a process of reflection, uh, removing those barriers as, as much as you can um, and and taking the lead from them around, well, what are the barriers that you're seeing? What, what are the trouble that you're having when uh, working with us? Uh, so that's, that's, that would be the only other thing that I'd say on that.
0: Thank and you. And can
2: I
3: just add to that, um, sorry, uh, the co-creation part, I think yeah. is a really important part so that when you're actually creating something, you're co-creating together. And Mm. everyone has an equal voice at the table. That's that.
0: That's gold. Um, And one final question that um, that came up in the chat from Juna. Thanks for the question, Juna. How do you measure the added value, the economic and social, from social procurement? And perhaps eh, given the time we have, just a very short, succinct, specific example, how do you measure the added value, both economic and social, from social procurement? So we've done that by partnering with uh, Think Impact and universities to do the
3: evaluation research and then the social return on investment. There are measures in which you can do that with and um, and different organisations that can actually help you um, work out what your, your social impact is in dollar terms. Terrific.
0: So on that, um, I would love to say a very, very warm thank you to you all. And if I can summarise, hopefully just a few key points, I'm not going to cover everything you've covered today because it was an incredibly rich um, conversation today. Really very appreciative of your sharing and your insights because I know this has come from lessons and sometimes failures um, and picking yourself up again and learning from those and keep going forward. Um, But there was probably six things that really stood out to me here. And the first one is, you know, if you're going to take anything away from this is be really clear on your why. That came through so strong. Um, We've moved beyond compliance well and truly now when it comes to social procurement. Um, The opportunity for businesses to have a positive societal and social impact is immense. Um, And there's incredible flow on benefits. Some of the ones we've talked about today um, and some we haven't around the brand, around staff engagement. Uh, Operational efficiencies can sometimes come from social procurement and also um, access to new markets and products and services. So the benefits are quite immense. Um, The second one is it's not just about social procurement. People, and nobody can do this alone, Uh, it actually requires the involvement and the partnership and, as you've just said, Janet, the co-creation of many people both inside and outside the organisation. So be prepared to reach out from Partnerships for Success uh, and that goes to my third point is partnership is key. Having the right partner, selecting the right partners in the right way for the right reasons so that you can create mutual value and be really aligned on what you want to achieve together is really powerful. Um, the fourth one being um, the one that's just been raised in our question, which I think is really valuable, is making sure we've got behavioural government, uh, sorry governance and oversight in place to protect the vulnerable people that might be involved in this process. Really important point. Thank you for that. This is about change, uh, is the the fifth point. It is about getting alignment and buy-in from multiple people in the organisation and outside of. So be prepared to change. Be prepared to face roadblocks and overcome them together. Um, And and then um, share those success stories, to your point, Paul, um, and and I know you've spoken about it too, Janet. It's so important to share those success stories to all those involved Um, but also those that aren't involved that need to hear about this to be inspired about the good work that you're doing Uh, and, you know, raise the bar for other organisations. We want to make sure more people keep doing this. Uh, And finally, access the training. There is training and information and resources, whether it be the University of Melbourne eLearn tool or other forms of, of learning. Learn and grow because this is a complex space and we want to welcome and invite as many people into this to see them succeed as well. Thank you all very much, so much for today. It's been an absolute pleasure and honour. We appreciate your time and your generous giving. And thank you so much for our audience, for your chats, um, for being here today and for your wonderful questions. We hope you've taken something from this so that you can actually have a greater social impact as well. Thank you all.